The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 10.30, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. I don't know if you've ever had that moment where maybe you, you've gone to a store or you've gone to a restaurant or you've worked with a vendor and they really let you down and they let you down as to something like really fundamental that they were supposed to do and you want to just look at them and just say, you had one job, just one simple job, okay? And I, I had that experience recently. I um, had dropped off some clothes at the dry cleaner and one of the things I dropped off were, was a suit. And I don't wear suits very often, but occasionally with, like, if I officiate a wedding or something like that, um, I'll wear a suit. And I had a wedding coming up, and I dropped off my suit at the dry cleaner. And I got it back, you know, in the cellophane on the hook, okay. And I, I hung it in my closet. I left the cellophane on, and I didn't really need to touch it for any reason. I get closer to this wedding, and um, I take out the suit, take the cellophane off. I take the jacket off, and there are no pants, so I'm like looking on the floor of my closet, there's no pants, and I'm like pretty upset, and I called the dry cleaner and said, I have no pants. I said, I think you have my pants, and she says, uh, I, I don't know, are you sure? And I said, oh, I'm sure, I have no pants here, okay? And I'm, I'm looking around, she said, well, can you check again? I'm like, oh, I don't need to check again, okay, I did not get my pants back. And so she's like, I was like, can you check there to see if my pants are there? She says, okay, I'll call you back. Well, I got no phone call back, okay, which was the answer that I needed, and I called them back in and said, okay, clearly you have not found my pants. Do you send these clothes like away? She said, well, actually, yeah, we do. We send them away. I'm like, well, can you check with them to see if they have my pants? And um, she said, okay, which is code for no, but I'll call you back and tell you that I did. And I said, okay, thank you, okay, and I hung up. I called back, no, they've not found my pants, and so um, I, I never got the pants back, and I decided I needed a new dry cleaner. And um, I, I wanted to say, okay, like, you had one job. Like, it's just, I, I bring you my clothes, you dry clean the clothes, and I, I didn't think I had to add the last part, but you give them back to me, okay? Like, and that's now a new qualification as I'm looking for a new dry cleaner. Okay, you dry clean clothes, right? You give them back as well. Is that also true? Okay, because there's just one fundamental thing that they're supposed to do. Okay, now, when things get, like, crazy and hectic in our lives, you know, like, if you're, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but it's just when a season of life just gets, like, really crazy and stressful and you feel like you're getting pulled in a bunch of different directions and, and it seems like everyone needs something from you and it's just you're running around putting out fires. I'm sure none of you have ever experienced anything like that before in your life. But if you ever have that moment where it just seems stressful and chaotic, like this one mother is down in the front experiencing right now, if you've ever experienced something hectic and chaotic, one of the best things that you can do is just stop and like reprioritize. Is you stop and say, okay, I've got all these things pulling me in all these different directions. Let me just stop and say, okay, what is the most important, and you kind of, when you can put things back in priority, like that is key. It's key if you're multitasking. It's key if you've got a lot of things on your plate, like just start. In fact, um, maybe at your company, your place of work, um, companies invest a lot in helping people prioritize. You ever heard of that diagram where you kind of plot things out in four categories, where it's like, if it's not urgent, 
and not important. Like that's one category. But there's things that are very urgent, but they're not important. And then they're, they're um, very important, but not urgent. And then there's the things urgent and important. You guys know what I'm talking about? You can kind of plot things out. Like when things get crazy, when you just stop and you can prioritize, that's one of the healthiest, most important things you can do. And really, it's relieving. You're just like, okay, all right. With all these things, okay, here's the priority. With how chaotic our lives can get sometimes, there's this one passage in the Bible that I want to share with you. Because it just says, okay, just relax, time out. Let's just start again. What's the most important thing and move from there? And I want you to see this passage. In fact, we're going to dig into it for a few weeks. It's in the book of Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy. Open there in your Bible or Bible app, Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 4. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. You may say, look, Deuteronomy, I'm not super familiar with it. I bet maybe you have heard this this section or part of this, and if you haven't, this is um, one of the most famous passages out of the entire Old Testament in the Bible. Deuteronomy 6, we're going to start in verse 4. Let me read the whole passage that we're going to look at, and then we'll kind of break it apart. Here's, here's what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and as uh, they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now that section of the Bible actually has a name. It's recited in parts of Judaism. It's recited every single day. It's known as the Shema. I want us to all get comfortable with that word. Let's say that word Shema together. One, two, three, Shema. That is a Hebrew word coming from the very first word in that whole section that means hear. Hear, O Israel. Listen. In other words, don't let it go in one ear and out the other ear. Hear this. And it's going to say later, let it sink into your heart. Be saturated in this one passage of Scripture so that it's transforming you, it's changing you, and it's affecting your life. The Shema is one of the most critical sections of the entire Bible. In fact... Those six verses pretty much summarize the entire Old Testament. It takes the entire Old Testament in one concentrated group of six verses. Let me show you where we get that from. In in Matthew um, chapter 22, I'm just going to read you this quick story of what happened to Jesus. Okay, let me just, there's a crowd there. And Jesus does some teachings, and some people have some questions. Look at what it says. Let me just read this to you, Matthew twenty-two thirty-five. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. <sighs> Lawyers. <laughs> teacher, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? All right, now, now time out here for a second. Jesus is getting, gets tested all the time. Like religious leaders and people, they're always asking him tough questions. Some of these questions are just a straight-up trap. 
And so he'll answer it with another question, and they'll be so turned around in a knot that they don't know what to do, and they walk away. Sometimes they'll test him with a question, and again, it's kind of a trap, and so he'll tell a story, and the story is so profound that they're dumbfounded. It answers their questions, reveals their hearts, and then they walk away. They don't know what to say. And then sometimes they ask a question to test him, and he's like, really, are are you serious? And then he just gives them the answer. That's what he does this time. He says, okay, that's the best you got? He says, okay, I'll tell you. Look at what he says, verse uh, 37. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Does that sound familiar? This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. When he says law and prophets, that's like Bible language for the Old Testament. He says, you want to know what the greatest commandment is? It's, you know it. It's the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. And then he gives them the second commandment. And he says, all that, the whole Old Testament builds on this. In fact, here's what we're going to look at in just a, few, a little bit later. What I want to show you is this is not only the summary of what the Old Testament teaches it's also the story of the whole Old Testament. And I want to I just start with this idea as we're going to study this passage for a few weeks. I want to just start with what it says. And, and before we kind of just go on to autopilot and nod and say, yeah, yeah, I got it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. I, you know, that's not a surprise to hear that at church. And initially we might say, yeah, I got it. And we start nodding our heads. But just time out for a second. Because what that just said, if we say we believe it, has unbelievable implications for our life every minute of every day. I mean, look what it says is love the Lord your God. Can we just stop on that phrase for a second? Your God? What did it just say about the God? It says, Hero Israel, the Lord is one. Okay. The claim here is that there is one God in all of the universe, one creator. He's not a God. It's not some mythological demigod. There is one single, almighty, most holy creator God over the universe. We say, yeah, and you say, yes, okay, I, I believe there's a God. Well, think of the implications with me about that for a second. If there is one creator God, let's just play this out. That means he created you. He wired you together. He invented you. He came up with your personality, your DNA. He knows everything about you. He wired you together. He's your, personally, he's your creator. He invented you. That means he has rights over you. So in other words, like if you wrote a song, you're like, I like this song, and your friend takes that song and go records it, and you hear him playing it, uh, your friend playing it on the radio, like, you'd be upset. You have rights over that song, don't you? If you invented something, and you put a patent on that, but your friend steals it, and then goes and monetizes your invention, I mean, you'd be upset. That's yours. You have rights over it. So he has rights over us. We don't have rights as his invention outside of the fact that he is God. Okay, like let's play out this scenario. I want you to imagine for a second, you invented a robot. 
And its robot is so advanced, it's like artificial intelligence, okay? And, but it's your design. You'd worked on it for years. You invented a robot. And one day, you turn on the robot, and you go in the kitchen to make breakfast, and all of a sudden, you turn around, and the front door's open. Your robot has gone rogue. It's escaped. Okay, and you look everywhere for the robot. You can't find it, and days go by, weeks, months go by, and um, all of a sudden, you're watching, turning on the television, you're clicking through the channels, and you see on Oprah your robot. And your robot has written a book about artificial intelligence. It's a bestseller. He's now going through the, uh, all the television shows or interviewing him. He's making a fortune, and he has a house on Malibu, okay? You're a little upset, Okay? You have rights over this robot. He doesn't have rights outside of you. That house on Malibu belongs to you, okay, ultimately. You're upset because he's your robot. You are the invention of God. We do not have rights outside of the fact that he is God. What kind of God is he? He's not a type, the type of God, according to the scripture, that just winds up creation, lets it go, and then goes and focuses on something else. That's called deism. That's a whole different thing. The Bible says that he holds all things together. In other words, every molecule of every blade of grass is under the control of God. Every law of science that we've discovered is only repeating in a pattern because God's keeping it going. That means like the molecules in your body, your heart, is still pumping right now because he's keeping it going. You and I, we are not autonomous. He is, we exist. He has rights over us. We exist because he created us. We are his invention, which means we are under his authority. Now, this is a tough issue for us as a culture. Because over the last few generations, we tend to question almost all authority. We hold on to authority very, very loosely. We struggle with authority. And very few times do we kind of come back to this basic understanding of authority. And every now and then we see a spark where we get really understanding authority. Like, for example, when your child or your grandchild says, uh, why should I do that? And you say, because I'm your dad and I told you. That's when we suddenly remember authority. Or, or how about this? Maybe someone, or maybe those of you who serve in the military, or if you know someone who serves in the military, the military has a healthy understanding of I obey because I am under authority. We struggle with the idea of authority, so we, un we struggle with the idea of having God that we fall under, that we surrender to. What it means, if he has rights over us, and if we surrender to God, that means that our responsibility is to submit every part of our life, to surrender every single part of our lives to God. And our temptation is to say, man, that's like, that's a lot to surrender all of that to God. I, like, I'm supposed to like surrender all of that to God. I feel like I'm giving him a lot as if, Giving God the control over every part of our life is some great act of generosity. God, you're so lucky. I'm giving you every part of my life. It's not a great act of generosity. It's avoiding rebellion against someone who actually has rights over us. 
Think of it like this. Here's what we often do is we say, okay, God, I'm going to surrender. And sometimes we use our submission and surrender as negotiation with God. So sometimes we say things like this. Okay, God, um, I don't know if you've seen what's been happening in my, my job situation right now. But um, I have an opportunity in my career that if I just cut this corner, if I do some things that are ugh, a little ethically, you know, maybe shady, okay? If I, if I do this thing that I, I don't think is probably has the most character, but if I do this, I could clearly get ahead. But here's what I'm going to do, God. I'm going to do it with integrity, but my expectation is if I do it your way, I'm expecting that you're going to bless my job and my career, and I'm expecting to get that account, grow the business, get the promotion. And so we use our surrender and submission as if we have leverage over God. God, I'll take my finances, and I'll handle it your way, but my expectation is if I do it your way, then you're going to bless back um, with wealth. So I'm going to throttle forward my submission and surrender kind of as this negotiation of expecting things back to God as if I feel like I have some kind of leverage over God. I mean, before we nod, like, oh, yeah, of course, he's my God, and there's a God, and I believe in God, and he made me a creator. I mean, let's just pause for a second and just be reminded, like, what are the implications? He has all the authority. He has all the rights. And my surrender to him is because that's what he's owed. You say, okay, it's tough to have kind of a relationship with God like that because it seems like that's kind of tyrannical. But let's go back to what this said because it's profound. Because actually what the phrase started with is it says, love the Lord, your God. The relationship begins with love. I mean, can you think about that for a second? What's biblical love? It's a chosen commitment, and out of that commitment, I kindle and stir up affection and passion and emotion towards that thing, that person. The basis of my relationship with my God is based on love the Lord. It's a loving relationship. It's a passion for. It's a desire for. It's a pursuit of. It's loving the Lord. You say, well, okay, if God is expecting my surrender, like, where does the love part come in? Because just surrendering everything and surrendering my rights to God, that seems very different from loving Him. Where does the love part come in? Well, the Bible tells us, we love because He first loved us. Here's the, can I just tell you the incredible thing? Do you think about this fresh? We owe everything to God. He doesn't have to be like this, but let me tell you who your God is. He doesn't have to be like this, but he is a God that loves you more than you could possibly comprehend. That's the type of God that we have the privilege of surrendering everything to you. You say, how much does he love me? He loves you so much that he looks down at earthlings and sees our rebellion where we say, well, I think I'm God, so I'm going to pass you a little bit at a time some surrender as long as you prove that you give me what I want. He looks down at all of that rebellion against the rightful God, and he says, I still love them so much that I'm going to become a little earthling the person of Jesus, God in the flesh. I'm going to become an earthling, even though they're going to reject me, humiliate me, torture me, and kill me, and nail me to a cross. 
I'm still going to come down because I love them so much. In fact, I'm going to take the penalty for all of their rebellion. I'm going to pay for it on the cross. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again from the dead so that they know that their sins, 100% past, present, and future, is paid for and offer them salvation as a gift. So that anyone who says, yes, I believe that the work of Jesus thoroughly saves me for eternity can be saved. That's who your God is. He says, love the Lord, your God. We love him and surrender to him because of this incredible message of the gospel of what he did through Jesus Christ. He didn't have to be like that, but that's who he is. And then he says, love the Lord, your your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. In other words, Love your God with everything you've got. Can I just say something that sounds so obvious, but I just want to say it as cleanly and simply as I possibly can because we just need the gut check reminder every now and then. Your relationship with God is the most important thing in your life. It's the most important thing. To love the Lord your God. I mean, it makes sense. He is God. He holds your molecules together. He has rights over you. We owe him our allegiance and submission and surrender. And he loves us and says, I love you so much. You're like a child. I'm my child. I'm going to work all things together. For good? I mean, it kind of logically makes sense that our relationship with God is the most important thing in our lives. Not my career. Not your career. Not your success. Not your security. Not your finances. Not your health. Not your family. Not your spouse, not your kids, not your hobbies, not your own enjoyment and pleasure. It's not your goals and dreams, not the plan of your life. It's none of that. The most important thing in your life, your relationship with God. Here's how Jesus put it. And he explained why it's so important. Matthew 6.33, maybe you've heard this verse before. Jesus' words, he said, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What are these things? In context, that verse is where Jesus is saying, Hey, um, I don't know if you're experiencing this, but if you're stressed out about your life and full of anxiety, wondering you know, how you're going to make it from day to day, He says, do you realize I I got it all in control? So just seek first the kingdom of God and the rest will work itself out. In other words, in the midst of the chaos, let's just kind of get back to the priority. What's the most important thing? All these things pulling me in every direction. What is the most important thing? Put my relationship with God first. Let's just start with that and find the relief of, okay, if I can accomplish one thing today, if I can invest in only one 
thing, if I can get one thing right of all the other things in my life, let me get this one thing right, my relationship with my creator who invented me. Why? Because everything trickles down from that. Why? Because any one of those other things that are all good, career, finances, security, comfort, family, friendships, relationships, all those things are good things, but they, are, they really fall apart when they become the most important thing. When my kids become the most important thing in my life, my expectations on them crush them. When my spouse becomes the most important thing and my spouse is the one that's going to save me, that kind of expectation on a spouse kills a marriage. When I put my hope in finances and financial security, when I put my hope in a job, when I put my hope in, in, uh, in success, when I put hope in comfort, when I put hope in any one of those things, it crumbles. It's not good as a God because it's not. When we put God first, everything else gets in its proper order and he guides us through all of these things. Why would I put my health over God when my health is in God's hands? Why would I put my career over God when he's like, I, I have it all planned out for you already. I'm just trying to lead you through it. Church, can we just stop here just this one moment and say, okay, um, the most important thing, my relationship with God, let nothing else distract me from that. Every day and all of the other pieces get in their rightful place. Now in this text, when it's talking about this, did you notice where it went next? Because it might not be what we'd expect, because what we'd expect is, okay, most important thing is about God. Okay, God, tell us. What do we do? Like, how do we make, like, keep that the number one important thing? Or what are the practices we do to invest in that? But that's not where he goes next. He says, keep your relationship with God as the most important thing. And then he says this, and train it to your children diligently. He says, here's your most important thing of your life, your relationship with God. And if there's one thing you leave behind, it's a spiritual legacy in your children. Not an accomplishment, not a bank account, not a retirement, not a level in your company. None of that. If you can do one thing, invest in your relationship with God. If you can leave one thing behind, it's leave a spiritual legacy in your children. Why does that make sense? The, ki the kids that God has blessed you with or grandkids he's blessed you with or the kids he's one day going to bless you with is the greatest gift you've been given the most priceless treasure, these little lives. The most important thing you'll leave behind. Can I just, can we just be like, can I just be gut honest with you? One day, when each of us are sitting on our deathbed, what we'll care about around us is our children and family. You really don't care about anything else. Children are most important, and it's the most important thing you'll leave behind. And if the, your faith, which affects your eternity, is the most important thing in your life, 
then of all the ways you want to train up your kids and all the lessons you want them to learn, of all the skills you want them to know, the most important thing has to be their faith. Let me just be really honest. When your kids one day, if you have um, kids in your home, when they leave your home, can we just think about this? What will you care most about? That they got the tennis scholarship or they know where they're spending eternity? What could possibly be more important than leaving a legacy of faith in our children? You say, look, I, I don't know how to do that. I, I, I don't know. That, that's a difficult thing. I, I don't know how to do that. It is a difficult thing. In fact, that is the summary of the story of the Old Testament. They struggled to put God first, and then when they finally got that right, they struggled to pass it to their kids. The book of Judges, I mean, this passage summarizes pretty much the Old Testament. The book of Judges they would slowly get off track and they put other gods first. They'd have idols in their life and then God would discipline them and bring them back. He'd have some other outside kingdom oppress them and then they'd repent and then they'd say, no God, we, we forgot you're supposed to be first and they'd put him first and then he'd take, take that army away and then all of a sudden what would happen? The very next generation would get back off track. They didn't pass it on to their kids. Hezekiah. As you're reading through the book of Kings and you're following all of the kings of Judah who are one after another, they're getting more and more and more wicked. I mean, it's starting to get crazy. Like, they're taking idols and they're putting it in God's temple to worship the idols instead of God. It's, it's mind-blowing. And finally, you get to Hezekiah and God brings him to a place where he's humbled and he brings all of Judah back to God and they humble themselves and this Assyrian army is marching towards them and God puts a stop to it and Assyria runs home and they're saved and they all turn back to God and then Hezekiah's son the next king is a guy named Manasseh who's pretty much the wickedest king in all of history of Judah the story of Israel you could boil it down they, they struggled to keep God first and they struggled to pass it down to their kids man if there's one thing that we could get right put our relationship with God first and pass down a spiritual legacy to our kids. If there's one thing that we could do based on the scripture, it's church to hear. Not just sit here and say, yeah, good point, keep God first. But to hear it. Take inventory. Confess. Repent. You say, what, what does that word repent mean? Repent is where you stop and you say, God, this is where I'm messing up and I'm now making a U-turn and I'm going the opposite direction. Can we hear it? It's to stop and say, okay, um, what am I putting ahead of my children is there something I'm thinking I'm leaving behind that's more important than my kids? And then of the things I'm developing my kids, what am I prioritizing over their spiritual development? Can I tell you that's a difficult thing? Can I just speak from a place of vulnerability? One of the hardest things about tending, one of the hardest things competing 
with tending to the spiritual development of children is being vocationally in the ministry and tending to the spiritual development of people in a church. And so one of the things we remind ourselves as a church staff over and over is you've given your life to spiritual development of people, but the most important thing is developing your own children and our leaders and our elders hold us accountable to say, hey, are, are you making disciples in your family first? Because if not, you know, time out. That's the most important thing. And unapologetically, we as a staff remind ourselves, but the most important thing is to raise up our children to know our faith. Because that's the thing that when we stand before God, he'll ask us first. I hope you unapologetically hold on to that first as well. The number one thing I'm leaving behind is the spiritual development of my children. But can we hear it today? Can we, before we go into this rest of this series and talk about how to do that, can we just today stop and say, let me get things back on track. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do things a little bit different. I want to lead us through a time of prayer right here in our seats, and then I have a few things I want to share at the end. But I want to take a moment to take this passage seriously and each of us individually, quietly right there in our seats, go before the Lord in confession and repentance. So if you would just go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes. I want to guide you through a moment of repentance. If you're watching online, I'd like for you to just take a posture of prayer and let me guide you through. Can you quiet yourself before God for a second? Even though we're here corporately together, can you have an intimate moment with God? Can you just confess just silently in your heart to him? What are the things that you've made more important than him? In your mind, call those out and confess them. You may be a seasoned Christian. You've been walking with God for years. And you realize, you know what, I've let this sneak up on me. I'm putting this in front of God. Confess it. You may be a new believer and you said, you know what, I I kind of thought that the Christian side, the spiritual side of my life was just a piece of my life. And that like if I went to church and read the Bible, it would just give me good principles to live out my life the way I want it. But what I'm realizing is I've had it backwards. It's got to be a total just surrender to God. And I need to put God on the throne, not these other goals that I have for my life. Surrender that and put him on the throne. Confess those things to him. You might be here and saying, look, if I'm honest, I would not say that I'm a Christian, or at least I wouldn't walking in here, but I'm realizing who God is. I owe him my surrender because he's God and my creator, and also I realize what kind of God he is. He loves me, and he sent Jesus to save me and pay for my sins. I want to put my faith in Jesus and surrender to him. Then quietly find salvation right now in your seat and quietly say to God that you surrender him and you accept Jesus. Now, those of you who are our parents or grandparents, regardless of what stage of life your kids or grandkids are at, is, there's, is there a legacy that you've put as more important than, than your children? Can you confess that to him silently? Just say, God, I've put this first. My kids are more important. I've put this first. My kids are more important. 
Is there something in your kids that you've been developing? They're a good thing, but you've put it as a more important goal for your kids than their spiritual development, their relationship with their creator? Just silently in your seat, can you, can you just confess that? Say, God, I don't want to go. I, I want to get my, my life right, my priorities right. Now, church, let me just pray over us a prayer of repentance. God, we come before you needing to humble, humble ourselves and confess that we've gotten ourselves the wrong priorities. We confess them and we ask that you would breathe on us a spirit of repentance that we would never go back to this sin. We would keep you first and we would keep leaving a legacy of the spiritual development of our kids as the greatest thing we will leave behind. Keep us prioritized, we ask. Give us the spirit of repentance. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let me share a few things with you, church. This is what gospel repentance looks like. The sins you just confess to God. Some of you may have felt that deeply. Some of you said, look, I got to just, I feel the guilt and the shame of that. Let me remind you of the work that Jesus did. He thoroughly paid for your sins, past, present, and future. His grace has overcome the sin you just confessed. It was nailed to the cross. It is finished. It is removed as far from you as far as the east is from the west. His grace is new every morning. You cannot, in view of the cross, walk out of here carrying that guilt or shame anymore. It has been put away forever. You have a fresh start starting now. You have a fresh start. Jesus says, Behold, I make all things new. He is doing a new work in you starting now. A new work to build in a legacy for in your children and your lineage. He's getting your priorities back right with him first. He is beginning a new work in you, in our families, and in our church starting now. And so here's your homework for this week. One thing to remind you of that. Can everyone take out this three by five card that was on your seat? Everyone grab that. I want you to grab this card. Here's your homework this week. I want you to take the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Take the Shema, what we just read, those six verses, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. And here is your homework. This week, write it on this card. Fold up this card and put it in your pocket and carry it with you for one week everywhere you go. I want you to take one verse a day and I want you to memorize it. You can do that easily. Say, look, I haven't memorized anything in a long time. You can do it. One verse a day. We're going to write this on our hearts in obedience to what this says to help sink in, saturate ourselves in the knowledge of what our priorities are. Carry it with you every day because no matter where you are, your priorities never change. Your homework, write the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, on this card and carry it with you wherever you go. If you're watching online, find a card, find a post-it note, write Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 on that card, put it in your pocket, carry it with you everywhere you go this week and memorize it. I want to leave you with one final thought. If you're here and you're saying, look, you don't understand. 
my kids are already almost out of the house. My kids are grown. They have families of their own. I've got a blended family. I only get my kids a, a, a couple times, you know, a month. My grandkids, I, I don't get to see them as much as I want. I, I, feel like I, I feel like I missed my chance. But what does the Bible say? It says the three key virtues are faith, hope, and love. Hope, Christian, never, 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 never lose hope. Why would he bring you here today to walk through this series if, if there was not hope for the lineage you're leaving behind? He has you here for a reason. He's going to use you. It's his story in their lives, and he is going to do a great work. I want to close with this story, the story of a grandmother. And she had a grandson who didn't have really any you know, spiritual influences in his life. He's kind of doing his own thing. And she just felt burdened for this grandson. She just prayed for him, prayed for him. She didn't have a lot of contact with him, but she'd pray for him, pray for him every now and then. When he was off at college, she'd write him a note, send him a little money. She just prayed and prayed and prayed into his adulthood. And she kind of lost track of what was going on in his life. And, and um, she was towards the very end of her life. She was sitting in a nursing home. And one of the things that she loved to do was watch preachers on television, and she loved watching uh, this one uh, uh, show called The Coral Ridge Hour, and she loved watching uh, Dr. D. James Kennedy back when he used to be on. And she'd watch him. He was one of their favorite shows, and she's sitting there in her recliner at the very end of her life, and she sees that Dr. Kennedy had brought this particular pastor in to interview him, and Dr. Kennedy's interviewing this pastor, and she looks, and she looks closer, and she realizes it was her grandson. And he had not only come to faith, he'd become a pastor. And she called um, one of her daughters and she said, you'll never believe it. You know, your, your nephew, my grandson, he, he, I've been praying for him all these years and praying over and over. I never gave up. I've been praying. And, and he turned on the television. He, he's on with Dr. Kennedy and he became a pastor. And he, she hung up the phone and she was crying. And, and the, the daughter went immediately over to the house to check on her. And she had, by the time the daughter got there, she had passed away in her chair. It was the final moments of her life she saw the redemption of the grandson she had been praying for. That grandson was my father. And if it hadn't been for her prayers, I wouldn't be here either. Don't ever, 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 ever give up hope. Church, he's doing a new work in our families, and he wants to use this scripture to change us and our homes. Let me pray that he does that work in our midst. Jesus, we just ask that you would empower us through this series. Would you do an awesome work of transformation in our lives? God, we want to put you first. You are our God, and we love you. God, look at what you've done to save us for eternity. Lord, help us to keep that first in the midst of all the things pulling on us. Help us to put you first as our number one priority. 
God, would you strengthen us then as we're, you've blessed us with these children, blessed us with grandchildren, you've blessed us with future children, that we would say the number one thing we will leave behind is a spiritual legacy in our children. Lord, we are not going to give up hope no matter where that child is. That child may be a prodigal, but we are going to keep praying and keep praying and keep praying knowing you have a story for that child, and we thank you that you want to use us for that great work. Lord, would you do a work in our church through this series? We want our homes to be different. We want to see you do a mighty thing in our midst. You are a God on the move, and we ask you and welcome you to be on the move in our church and in our families. And we lift all this up in the mighty, victorious, conquering name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321. Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.